This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books and Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Navarapu, the host of this channel. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of being in conversation with Dr. Maurice Raphael Magania, author of the fantastic new book, Cartographies of Youth Resistance, Hip-Hop, Punk, and Urban Autonomy in Mexico, which was published by University of California Press in 2020. Dr. Magania is a sociocultural anthropologist and assistant professor of Mexican-American studies at the University of Arizona. Thanks so much for taking time out, Maurice. It's such an honor to have you on the podcast today. On the contrary, Sneha, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm very excited to uh, be speaking with you today. Yeah, I'm so glad we could make it work. I'm um, sure both of our schedules were sort of, uh, you know, really busy towards the end of the term or midterms, depending on the kind of academic structure your university is following. So I'm I'm really excited to kickstart this conversation. And uh, we do have a convention in New Books Network that we start out with getting to know our guests a little more. So I would love it if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, perhaps how you became an anthropologist. Sure. Thank you. Um, Yeah, so I think like many, many people uh, who come into anthropology, uh, it was certainly um, a bit of a circuitous route uh, to getting here. Um, You know, myself uh, did not complete um, high school. Um, You know, I, I joined the workforce as a teenager. Um, ended up getting my my GED and doing some community college here and there, um, and then once I you know decided that um, roofing houses and working at car washes was not was not going to be um, you know the best long term career uh, for me, um, you know my body was definitely telling me that um, that, that that had a, a shelf life. So. Uh, you know, I decided to go um, to a four-year four-year university um, with the intention of be- becoming actually a, a pilot. Um, but it turns out mm. that it turns out that that's very expensive um, to to uh, go to the best <laughs> um, aeronautical um, uh, universities um, requires quite a bit of of money. Um, and so I ended up just enrolling in, uh, you know, University of South Florida, which was, um, you know, the the state school closest to where I was living at the time. Um, and I found anthropology through, you know, one of those career sort of guide uh, reference books, you know, where you you look up sort of what are your what are your skills, what are your interests, and what are some of the uh, careers that that might align with that, and you know, for me, I've always I've always loved uh, writing. I've I've always really I've been encouraged to to um, to write and to read. Um, and having grown up um, both, you know, in the United States and Mexico, and going back and forth my whole life, I knew that that was something that was really important for me to be able to continue to do. Um, you know, as, as a professional. And so anthropology uh, sort of, you know, checked several of those boxes. And um, I took took some anthropology classes at, at the University of South Florida, and they gave me a very skewed 
view of what the what the discipline looked like um, in in a positive sense. I suppose you know I had quite a quite a few professors and and mentors of color, um, and so it really helped me imagine myself as an anthropologist. And you know after taking a couple classes, it was something that really spoke to me. It resonated with me, and um, and so I went with it. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to say that of all the interviews that I've done until now, this has to have been the one of the most unique origin stories. And I'm so glad that you shared this. And it, it says a lot about academia um, that someone like your story is so unique, right? And um, yeah, thanks for, for sharing that. Um, I'm also interested in another origin story, and that's the one with that has to do with your book. Um, so how did cartographies of youth resistance originate? How did it unfold? Sure. So, you know, the book, the book, I think, is a result of a combination of, um, you know, the influence of my own biography, um, as well as, you know, the networks and institution where I, I did my graduate studies and a certain amount of of um of luck and of just um serendipity in terms of you know where where the world was at when i when i began uh, my my graduate studies um so i went into graduate school um you know i started in the fall of 2006 and i went into it thinking um you know that i was going to research social movements um probably in Mexico. I had done some um, human rights work uh, in Chiapas around the um, Zapatista movement and the, you know, paramilitarization of, of, of the state um, in response to try to squash the movement. Um, And so I had, you know, I had those, those interests in mind. Um, My, you know, my my family history, I think, very much led me in that direction. Um, my my father was a um, university student and a part of the 1968 um, student movement in Mexico City at the UNAM, the National Autonomous University of Mexico. Um, and, you know, I very much grew up with stories of 1968 and of the you know the the possibilities um as well as the the consequences of 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 rising up against the state and the brutal repression that was unleashed on um you know my my father's generation uh of of young people um and so you know i very much grew up sort of with with that um in my you know, the, the seed was always planted there in terms of thinking about about social movements and and young people's participation in social movements. You know, often had conversations uh, with my father uh, about you know the you know the disconnect that he saw between um, my generation in the United States and how we responded to things like you know the first Iraq War and other things that. Um, you know, that that he imagined would have ignited a massive um, uprising and a massive sort of response, especially from students and, and young people, and he didn't necessarily see it. And so, you know, it was always a lot of this sort of, well, you know, my, you know, in Mexico or my generation. So it's kind of the, the both the generational thing, but also the uh, you know, the different national context and the different national political cultures, you know, was constantly sort of this discussion about these things. And so, you know, I was always interested in um, in thinking about some of these issues. Um, and so while, you know, I went into uh, my graduate program with the general idea that I wanted to study social movements in Latin America, probably Mexico, and probably the, the Zapatista movement, since I had some um, experience already working in some of those communities. Yeah, so I had, you know, that experience um, having worked uh, in in Chiapas, and that's how I 
um, came to find um, my my soon-to-be advisor, um, but then uh, you know in the summer in the summer leading up to um, when I was going to begin the program, you know the social movement emerges uh, in Oaxaca. Um, yeah, in, in 2006, and um, my advisor was in Oaxaca during that time, and so we exchanged, you know, some emails, and and it became pretty clear that this was uh, a very a very significant um, social movement, and that um, you know it would just make it would make a lot of sense for me to um, shift shift my focus um, there, and so. You know that's how that's how I ended up um, uh, working in Oaxaca uh, and you know um, being being interested in the the social movement. My master's uh, thesis uh, really focused on the prominent role of the teachers' union in that movement, which is sort of the more visible and um, well known you know kind of mobilizing force um, from that movement. Um, and it was really through the through that work that I did um, with with the teachers union and looking at the alliances that they made um, that led me to to realize that the role of young people in the movement was um, was largely being um, either written out or in many ways trivialized uh, in the emerging narrative of of the social movement, um, and it was actually a teacher who who really encouraged me to think about um, um, the the prominent role and the important roles that youth played um, uh, in that in that social movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, you know, on in on that note, I really wanted to um, know more about how you went about doing ethnographic work for this project. And I ask this since I was very intrigued by your proposition early on in the book that social movements don't really have a start or end date. Instead, um, you write, and so beautifully, that um, the, the energy that fuels mass mobilizations can be transformed but not created or destroyed. So how did you go about studying this energy and how does this approach change the way we think about studying social movements? Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, thank you for that question. That's really, you know, that's really um, the the main argument in the book, right, is really about um, rethinking um, the parameters that we use to, you know, think about and, and analyze um, social movements. Um, and that's one thing that became very clear to me uh, as I was doing this, this research uh, was that there was all of these competing stories about about the movement, um, and not just about who its protagonists were, right, and who were the you know the the, the main actors involved in the social movement, um, but also whether or not in 2007 and 2008 and the years um, um, that followed, whether or not the social movement uh, still existed, or whether the social movement had already ended, um, and you know there there was really this this idea that um, well maybe it might be useful here to to give a little bit of a um, of a summary of of the social movement right that that I'm really that again is is the jumping off point for the book. Um, so it was a movement that in the summer of 2006 really started off uh, as a teachers union uh, strike um, in, in Oaxaca. This is an annual um, routine, right, where the teachers go on strike um, and set up an encampment in the main square in the Zócalo of the capital city um, to sort of pressure the state government to uh, negotiate uh, new, you know, new contracts, new working conditions, new um, allocation of, of resources for for schools and for 
for students. Um, and so, you know, that was the case again in 2006. Um, but, but that year, instead of negotiating with, with the teachers, um, the governor decided to send in uh, the police to, um, to clear the encampment, um, you know, in, in the middle of the night. Um, uh, violently, of course, and and so that you know that immediately backfires, and you know thousands of uh, Oaxacans rush to the the city center to help uh, the teachers sort of uh, reclaim the Zocalo, reclaim the main square, um, and uh, you know the police return to their barracks and refuse to to come out, refuse to continue to to repress the, the growing movement. Um, and so uh, this this growing this growing movement, you know, ends up um, maintaining well taking and maintaining grassroots control of the capital city and several municipalities throughout the state um, for almost six months. Um, you know, the governor the governor flees the state, takes much of his cabinet with him. Uniformed police officers are are nowhere to be found. Um, and um, you know, in in the absence of of you know these formal institutions of the state, the movement um, you know created its own its own alternative um, um, institutions for decision making, for garbage collection healthcare, um, uh, uh, you know, security, all, all these, all these kinds of things, radio, et cetera. Um, and so, so, you know, that, that six months of control, um, ends when the federal government sends, um, federal police, uh, into essentially lay siege on the city and take back, take back the city for, you know, to put it under government control. Um, and one of the main, uh, demands of the movement was the removal of the governor from office. Uh, and so since the governor was not removed from office, he um, finished out his term. Uh, the movement no longer controlled physically the city because the uh, you know police had um, taken it back. The you know sort of common sense and dominant narrative was that the movement was over once they lost control of the city. Um, that it was a failure because, um, you know, the governor was able to uh, finish out his term. Um, and so then that's really where the intervention of, of the book comes in. Um, it's sort of really questioning that neat sort of timeline and that neat uh, sort of assessment of what success, what success looks like for, for a social movement. Um, and so, so that's, you know, that, that, that's really the, the the starting point of the book because then the rest of the book right it's a, it's an ethnography of you know over 10 years of following these different um spaces and collectives that youth who participated in that initial six month um experiment with uh grassroots you know democracy uh, direct democracy um what what happened to them politically you know in in that subsequent 10 years um, and listening to to those activists um, you know they very much claimed um, you know that they were they were the social movement of 2006 and they were still you know they were still active the movement did not um, did not disappear did not stop um, it had simply entered a different phase um, it had transformed you know some some folks left the movement, other folks joined, you know, um, but it was this continual, um, but it was a movement that was still alive, right, according, according to them. So, you know, so, so I really took that seriously um, and started to think about, um, okay, how is it that this movement is still alive? Um, what, what does that look like? Um, and, you know, it didn't look like you know, um, multiple years of nonstop mass mobilizations and sort of these these more recognizable forms of social movement activism. Um, those were more 
sporadic and they were kept alive through everyday everyday forms of organizing and so that really required me to pay attention to how the activists really harnessed that energy from 2006 um and and really created uh spaces and new forms of politics that allowed them to continue to um to be politically and socially active in between the the moments of more you know a spectacular social movement action and so it was a real deep uh, attention to the production of space and how youth were um, shaping space um, transforming space contesting space um, etc et so I've, you know it's sort of this ethnographic attention to to space um, and also to um, to culture so ways that young people through punk through hip-hop through street art um, were able to you know create these communities that were very much politically active but are not um, are not defined solely by um, a political ideology or a political affiliation but rather um, looking at how they're all mutually um, constituted yeah thank you for that that was really um, I think it provided a lot of context for the conversations that we will be having um, on the on the podcast and uh, so if I were to paraphrase I guess I would say that the book in a way examines how indigenous and migrant youth in Mexico create meaningful channels for political and social participation in the context of what you term neoliberal militarization, right? And what I found uh, particularly compelling about the book was how you place this investigation in the context of urban social change in Mexico and of the enduring relevance of certain key urban public spaces like the Zocalo, the city center. So could you give us a sense of what neoliberal militarization is and how it's sort of key to understanding urbanization and city space in Mexico and maybe even beyond? Sure, thank you. Um, yes, so um, neoliberal militarization is sort of what the the term that I um, that I use to try and get at um, how these various um, regimes of uh, spatial and social order and control um, operate um, in Oaxaca, but also also elsewhere, right? Um, and so for me, um, you know, for me in, in the book, I think about uh, the, I think about the protagonist in the book as what I call the 2006 generation. And I call them the 2006 generation, both because, you know, they come of political age during the social movement that emerges in 2006, um, but also because 2006 marks really the the, uh, escalation of the drug war uh, in Mexico, right? And the escalation of the militarization of Mexican society and the militarization of of public space, uh, the um, and you know the the repression of dissent, right? And so um, um, neoliberal uh, militarization, um, you know, gets at the um, you know get, gets at that uh, way that space became really drastically militarized. Uh, Starting really in in 2006, um, but also the sort of the tension between that militarization of space and the repression of dissent, with the fact that the Oaxacan economy relies very heavily on heritage tourism, right? Um, and so that is, you know, you know that's 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 something that's not unique to. Oaxaca or to Mexico, right? We we increasingly see, um, you know, economies um, going all in on on tourism, different kinds of tourism to to sustain their their economies, um, and that 
that requires a very particular kind of space making and a very particular kind of packaging of of places um, for tourists to come and experience a particular um, you know a particular kind of of place and in the case of Oaxaca um, as the you know as as the, the the term heritage tourism implies right it's very much based on this sort of um, nostalgic um, uh, you know commodification of indigeneity and of the sort of Spanish colonial past um, and the sort of folk and the folklore of of uh, living indigenous people right and so it's this sort of spatial and temporal this dislodging of the living indigenous peoples that um you know that live in Oaxaca from their heritage and from you know what they can um what they can offer in the tourist imaginary and so neoliberal militarization is really is really trying to to get at the spatial manifestations of certain characteristic um, um, you know economic um, aspects of what neoliberalism looks like in Oaxaca and in and Mexico um, coinciding with you know, the drug war that really you know escalates in 2006 and then how that's experienced and contested by what I call the 2006 generation mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. And um, going off on that, um, in the first chapter, you explore the cultural politics of space making within the 2006 social movement. And in particular, I was uh, very intrigued by your discussion of what a citywide network of barricades did to the urban social fabric in the protests and I guess how they fostered um, a sense of comradeship and community. And um, how they how the barricades became laboratories for radical imagination, right? And um, I have to add here that I taught parts of this in a class I teach in urban sociology, and students were really taken by how it changed the way they thought about barricades in the city and the function of barricades in the city. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how and why barricades emerged as counter spaces and the intergenerational connections that they fostered in the in this context of the social movement? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Great, thank you. Um, and I have to I have to add just that you know I, I appreciate you uh, teaching um, teaching this work, and it's always great to hear you know how students um, uh, how, how it resonates uh, with students or what aspects sort of resonate um, yeah. with, with with folks students. So I appreciate they loved it. it. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Uh, that's great. So yeah, you know the the yeah. barricade. That's a great example. Um, that, you know, I appreciate the question. That's a great example of of what you know what this you know what 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 these different conversations and um, conceptualizations actually look like um, on the ground and, and in the book. Um, and so the, the network of barricades uh, emerges uh, in the context of that, you know, six month uh, grassroots control of the city where, um, you know, I mentioned that uniformed police officers were were no longer present. Um, but that doesn't mean that that policing, right, was no longer present um, in, in their place. Um, you know, uh, paramilitary forces um, were regularly um, circulating um, in, in caravans throughout the city um, at night, um, attacking um, people who they presumed to either be movement participants or even movement sympathizers, um, but also attacking key movement installations uh, for like, for example, uh, community-run 
or the uh, social movement run uh, radio stations. Um, and so um, in order to defend against those paramilitary convoys, which um, people called um, uh, caravans of death, um, they would erect every night this vast network of hundreds of, of barricades um, throughout the city in you know more central um, heavily trafficked areas as well as in neighborhoods um, uh, roads coming into the city um, really a very very um, um, expansive network of, of barricades and and these really became one of the most um, I think uh, radically democratic and diverse um, um, spaces uh, for the social movement, um, you know, in in 2006, there was there was other more formal spaces like the assembly and and things like that. But but here in the barricades, it was really, um, you know, everyday people um, either in their neighborhoods or or they would go to these key installations to to protect them, and they were you know opportunities for for folks to really um, come together in community around um, their, you know, their um, rejection of of authoritarianism and and violence as a way to control um, dissent. It was their way of protecting each other um, from from violence. It was their way of talking about and thinking through the extraordinary events that they were that they were living um you know it was hours and hours and hours of of um socializing with um neighbors that that in in many cases you know had rarely exchanged more than a you know a a, a hello um, um previously right and so so these became you know, both a space of of um, constructing an emergent um, horizontal politics where there are no leaders, or or better yet, where everybody is a leader and everybody makes decisions. Um, the you know the the erection of these barricades was not something that was um, handed down from you know any sort of leadership or anything like that. These were um grassroots decisions um and each each barricade had its own political culture had its own um you know had had its own particularities they 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 did not all look the same they were not all run the same um but they at the same time were all in conversation and trying to create a coherent strategy of self-defense and so it, it becomes really one of these sites where we get to see what a radical horizontal politics looks like um and then as i trace as i trace throughout the book that experience really radically informs very um very very much informs the politics that this generation uh 2006 generation um develops in the following years um and and it also very much alters the the political and social landscape of of the city um, because there's all of these new um, networks and um, and relationships that that emerge in those spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and you know what I found very useful about your book is also how seriously you take the value about thinking about uh, generations, but also about youth as a cultural category rather than a purely demographic one. And um, in the book, you develop this perspective further by showing us how youth in, uh, youth in, your, in, in your book, they challenge the, the state and uh, the settler colonial paradigm more broadly. And they insist that they're both urban um, and indigenous. So this insurgent identity in a sense is very specific to the 2006 generation, right? And um, I absolutely loved your arguments and observations about how this generation of youth mobilize around collective indigenous identities that are tied to political consciousness, social commitments, and family histories. 
And the book then offers a very fresh take on what it means to transcend the boundaries between urban slash rural, new slash old, global slash local. So could you tell us a little bit about how the politics practice by the youth you studied um, could be classified as decolonial or decolonial anarchism? And um, how does this link to another concept you discuss in the book, that is urban autonomy? Sure. Yeah. So these are, you know, very, um, I think, important sort of political um, projects that that I trace in the book, and they very much they very much overlap, right? Um, urban autonomy and and what I call in the book decolonial um, anarchisms. Um, so the the I, I think we'll start maybe with urban autonomy, which is sort of I think the the broader um, uh, politics that I think encompasses more of the groups that I that I look at in the book. Um, but you know, this is very much a a politics that draws a great deal of inspiration from the very uh, rich history of organizing uh, in Oaxaca specifically, but also throughout. Latin America around indigenous autonomy, um, and so a lot of a lot of the youth that um, that I highlight in the book uh, are are themselves migrants to the city or the children of migrants to the city from communities that practice. Um, um, a a um a form of indigenous autonomy or have a history of struggle around indigenous autonomy um and so so they have that they have that as a very strong and present uh reference point um they also have as a very strong reference point the struggle of the zapatistas who again are um you know right next door in in chiapas um but who really um, took the struggle for uh, indigenous autonomy, um, you know, to to an, a, another sort of um, in a different context. They created um, institutions to um, practice indigenous autonomy outside of the the power of the state, right? And so, in in you know, Zapatista territories, they came up with a, a, a way to practice indigenous autonomy that resonated, but also looked different from what indigenous autonomy uh, looked like in the communities where um, a lot of these uh, youth come from. And so then they sort of their political project becomes, how do we um, recreate um, our own form of autonomy from where we are, you know, from where we are situated, which is in an urban space, right? And so, so then they're thinking about how, what does urban autonomy mean? What does it look like? How do we practice it? Um, and how do we um, stay connected to um, these other struggles for autonomy um, without you know, losing sight of the fact that our reality in the city is different, um, yet still, you know, the fate of non-urban communities is still very, very much um, uh, a, a very important, right, uh, for their political projects. So, so, so it becomes this way to bridge, right, the urban and and the rural manifestations of what autonomy uh, might look like, as well as going beyond their their own communities. Um, and so that is that is a politics that that really transcends um, many of the uh, spaces and many of the collectives uh, that I look at in the book. Um, and then the decolonial anarchisms is is a more particular politics that emerges, um, you know, very strongly in the. And within the punk movement, uh, which is what they call themselves, the movimiento punk, which are you know the the an anarcho-punk movement in Oaxaca, um, you know that's that's very much uh, very much defines its politics in terms of of anarchism, as well as some other collectives that 
that that um, identify with um, the the anarchist uh, tradition in Oaxaca uh, found or represented really through like the Magon brothers, their Magonismo, which is a, a, another variant of of anarchism, um, and and so they practice these these varieties of anarchism, but they actually offer um, you know alternative genealogies uh, for anarchism because. Um, what they when it comes down to it they're they're like yes we're inspired by magon and we're inspired by um you know the broader anarcho punk movement which is a global movement um but really what we're but really what we're speaking about are um uh ways of governing and ways of organizing um that are uh indigenous to our communities in Oaxaca, right? And so they, you know, th through conversations with uh, leaders in their own communities, um, they really um, claim an anarchist politics as being something indigenous to, um, to the Americas um, and not coming primarily from Western um, uh, thinkers and Western philosophers of anarchy, um, though they are very also well versed, right, in in that philosophy of anarchism. They're they're saying, um, you know, this informs how we practice our anarchist politics um, today. But this is not this is not the origin, right? We're, we're really focusing on what um, Zapotec and um, Oaxacan indigenous intellectuals call comunalidad, which roughly translates to indigenous communal life. Um, and th that is a way of governing and a way of relating um, that is, uh, you know, based in community, it's based on consensus, it's based on um, non-capitalist uh, forms of exchange, of mutual aid, of reciprocity, um, and that's the kind of anarchism that they're practicing. And so, um, to sort of give it a name, I call it uh, decolonial anarchism. Um, and and so that is that is that is part of an urban autonomous politics, but it's a more particular one that not all of the groups share. But uh, the more general sort of umbrella of urban autonomy, I think, is one that unites um, uh, various groups in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's really um, helpful. And I think very concisely, you, know, you covered a lot of ground there. Um, so I really appreciate that. Um, and the second half of the book, so to speak, discusses the role of what you call rebel aesthetics in the collective practices of activists and artists and the ongoing resistance to neoliberal militarization. Um, I found the writing to be really vivid and I often felt like I was being pulled into the scenes and, you know, I think it's a mark of excellent ethnographic work. Um, what I think, I, and I do know that it's quite impossible to capture the ethnographic nuances in an interview like this one, I was still hoping that you could share a couple of instances from your fieldwork to tell our listeners why paying attention to rebel aesthetics matters to understanding how youth politics in Mexico works. Sure. Thank you. Um, yeah. So that's that's you know that's another one of the um, you know the concepts that I develop in in the book that I think is really important for understanding uh, the politics that that youth are are presenting um, are are presenting to us um, and that I you know think is really important to to take to take seriously. Um, and so when I talk about rebel aesthetics. You know, I'm referring to uh, collective practices through which uh, activists and artists uh, give visual form to their social and political imagination and sensibilities, um, and which open up space for others to imagine alternatives to the dominant social and spatial order, right? And so this, you know, encompasses you know, some of those more traditional social movement actions that um, disrupt and reconfigure space, such as 
roadblocks and marches and encampments, um, but it also, um, you know, it, it also includes uh, artistic intervent interventions in space, such as, um, you know, anti-government um, graffiti, um, you know, uh, murals that depict, you know, perhaps a, a utopian vision of an alternative um, uh, way of, of imagining the city. Um, it includes, um, you know, celebrations in the city streets. Um, so in a, a, as a way of sort of capturing these different manifestations of how uh, youth activists and artists are are really uh, giving form right to their to their politics and to their sensibilities that's you know that's what I call it rebel aesthetics um, and I think that it it is a you know it's it's an it's an intervention that I felt was necessary to make because um, oftentimes some of those um, you know so, some of those manifestations are 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 trivialized or they're not understood as being part of a larger um project or part of a you know a longer history of organizing right so where you could just see some of that anti-government graffiti and just be like oh that's vandalism or that's um you know that's just one person's um you know, grievance or or something of that nature, but really trying to understand the way that that is connected to um, a, a collective struggle and how it's connected to the more recognizable, um, you know, um, manifestations of dissent, um, such as the encampment and the march and and, and things like that. Um, and so it, it's really trying to understand how these different ways of of intervening in space and trying to create alternatives are are connected um, and that's really important when it comes to um, trying to understand the politics um, not just of youth but of really um, you know of of any marginalized group who does not have the political capital to be able to pull off you know um, you know massive actions um you know over time right where it comes at too great of a of a cost right there's there's a time for those massive uh, mobilizations but they're also not sustainable um and so instead of instead of seeing those as the only ways of 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 being active it's important to also kind of get at the nuance of of how these other um forms of, of dissent are, are connected to those. Um, and it's also really important in the context of, you know, that I described earlier of, of, of neoliberal militarization where, um, um, you know, the policing of dissent just, just makes it really um, impossible to, to maintain those, those more massive um, uh, actions and, and mobilizations. Um, and so, so, so it really comes from that sort of need to understand how um, marginalized actors and youth in particular in this case um, disrupt and expose the cracks in what otherwise seems to be a controlled um, sort of environment or, or, or of, a, of a city and of a space that's, uh, that's under government control, right? Or that is a... Um, place for tourism and a place for the extraction of of heritage for the consumption of others right um it's understanding that there's still beneath the surface there is a lot happening right and so it's a way of sort of um uh exposing that yeah um and you know i really appreciated how in the final chapter you kind of trace the formation and circulation of two graffiti art uh, graffiti crews in the city and the politics of the local punk movement and you you also go beyond uh, glorifying I guess these political engagements and you show the kinds of challenges that come up in sustaining these um, these engagements right so um, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about what kinds of challenges 
limitations there there are and how they shape the trajectories of these activists and artists that you spend time with yeah thank you for that um for that question i think that you know that's a really important um part of the story um and really yeah in the the final the final chapter and in the the conclusion um i try and um sort of see uh how the different groups that i um you know that i talk about as being part of this 2006 generation how how they fared um differently right um they fared differently in ways that perhaps were were predictable um, if 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 you're familiar with where they were before 2006, um, and so um, you know in in your in your question you're you're bringing to um, I think to to the front here um, kind of the the distinct trajectories between um, the the punk movement and um, you know what what we could call post graffiti street artists right so street artists in this case who very much began as grafiteros as graffiti writers and continue to um, be graffiti writers but have also developed um you know a very impressive repertoire of of art that includes um you know really elaborate beautiful murals as well as you know installation art and um wood carving and all, all kinds you know they're, they're they're a very diverse and skilled um group of of artists um but they they have very distinct trajectories um the you know as anybody who has been to oaxaca you know in the last 10 years 12 years even um would would know um street art is very visible in in the city um you know it's it's a tenuous um you know it's a tenuous relationship again because of the way that the city is marketed um for for heritage tourism it's part of a unesco world heritage site the 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 city center is um and so so you know there's there's definitely a, a complicated relationship but but street art is very much part you know has has been um has been incorporated right um into part of what um the tourist landscape looks like um people go to oaxaca um you know some go for for the folklore some go for the radical uh revolutionary street art some go for both um some go for the beaches but the the, the point is that has been sort of incorporated and um you know there's there's street art collectives and crews that you know have been very savvy in um you know capitalizing on that uh, there's some who you know are very much part of that dominant economy now um there's others who you know maybe have one foot in one foot out um and there's others who who reject that right and who refuse to be part of that that market um but there is there is sort of a legitimacy and certain um institutional recognition uh of the work that they do right um and and that contrasts you know that contrasts quite quite uh sharply with the fate of the the punk movement right the anarcho punks um you know they they very much are um you know they they were marginalized uh and as i as i you know document in the book they they were they were marginalized within the broader movement um they did experience a certain liminal elevation of of status um as a popular security force right they were a a, a group who was used to um you know having an antagonistic relationship uh with the police they were used to um you know being harassed and beaten and arrested by the police just for practicing their their you know um their subcultural um practices right having um music 
uh, concerts or distributing their zines. Um, and so when the movement emerges, they they were at the front lines, and um, you know, in many cases, they they protected um, teachers and other um, other you know older older folks in the movement by you know really forming the, the front line when when uh, police and paramilitaries were attacking the movement and so they were they were temporarily you know um, recognized and respected uh, for that but over the years um, you know their refusal to um, to play sort of respectability politics their refusal to um, toe any kind of uh, of party line or of really being uh, incorporated into a system that they, you know, um, want to see um, overturned. Um, you know, they they are very much um, again still um, marginalized, right? And so they don't have um, spaces in the city center like some of the you know street art um collectives for example right they're not part of the tourist imaginary um and um and there's you know different ways that 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 um that that, that tension sort of emerges in 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 the book you know I, I document some of those moments where that temporary um elevation um status elevation um you know begins to crack and you know it's some of it is is very familiar to to folks who um you know who who are part of social movements or or pay attention to social movements um you know um the ways the ways that protests are policed not just by law enforcement but also by um by members of the movements themselves what is what is you know an appropriate way to um, to mobilize? What is an appropriate way to protest? Um, um, you know, is it is it okay to um, tag um, you know the storefronts of multinational corporations? Is it okay to break windows? Is it okay to um, throw rocks, etc. Right. So so those kinds of tensions. You know, play out in in the book, and and the 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 consequences that we do see very different trajectories for these different groups. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a perfect note to end this really stimulating and interesting conversation on. But uh, before we do so, uh, I do have one last question for you, and uh, it's I'm sure we would all love to know what what you're working on currently, and. Uh, what can we hope to read by you in the near future? And I realize that I'm asking this at a time where the world seems to have, um, well, if not shut down, slowed down. And uh, so I'm curious to know how the pandemic has affected your future research plans and how you've been, what you've been working on. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, I think by the time that, that this podcast, um, uh, is, is published, um, I should have uh, an article, um, an article that's coming out that, that should be published by then as well, um, that comes from this, this next project um, that really looks at um, um, hip hop culture production and murals uh, in Los Angeles as a way of Sort of understanding a, um, you know, a multiracial, anti-racist sort of politics that um, that Black and Brown artists and activists are have been um, engaging in. Uh, that's particular to to Los Angeles, um, and so it's really looking at a uh, relational formations of race framework to to understand these sort of grassroots um, theorizations of race and difference and of um, solidarity um, that's going to come out in mm -hmm. uh, the journal of ethnic and racial studies um, uh, in the next in the next couple of weeks now 
um, and that's connected. That's to, awesome! Uh, Congratulations. Thank you, thank you. I'm really excited about that <laughs> that, that article and that project, um, and and it relates to um, a, a larger project that's trying to think about you know youth culture production in in a more transnational um, space. Um, thinking about murals, hip hop, um, also use of social media to to think about the ways that um, racialized youth are 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 really theorizing um, different um, different politics, different um, ways of of understanding uh, race and difference, um, and then and then sort of parallel um, to to that, um, I'm. I also have a, a couple of chapters uh, in in books that will probably be coming out maybe next year or so um, that that look a little bit more deeply at this sort of issue of heritage tourism and um, and street art and other kinds of of um, youth politics that sort of contest. Um, contest the ways that um, that space is made, the way that space is imagined and experienced. Um, and so sort of thinking a little bit more more deeply about about that intersection of of heritage tourism and and street art um, is something that you know obviously emerges from the book, but that I'm trying to think about more and and one of those is a co-authored co-authored piece with my colleague um, Sochil Flores Marcial, who's a a uh, Zapotec art historian, um, and so that's that's also a really exciting, um, you know, piece that that I'm working on right now. Um, that that hopefully will be coming out in in the next year or so. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to reading um, all of this and more by you. And um, you know, thanks again for taking time out. Um, I can't uh, I can't emphasize how much I, I really enjoyed uh, your book, and I can't wait to teach more of it. And um, and hopefully cite it. And yeah, congratulations on a, on a fantastic book. Thank you so much, Neha. I really, really enjoyed um, this conversation with you, and um, help you, you really helped me also think about think about the work and in a, a little bit of a different perspective. So, uh, thank you for that. Yeah, that's always great to hear. And uh, stay safe and take care. Thanks. You too.